This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. In a minute, you're going to hear from Rich Carlgaard. He's somebody you're going to want to listen to for two basic reasons. If you have a kid going to college, you need to hear what he says about the intense pressure kids are going under, and you need to take a deep breath. The other one could apply to you or to somebody you know, and that is he's got this great book about late bloomers. As Yogi Berra said about baseball, it ain't over till it's over. Well, this whole idea that if you're not a success by the age of 30 or 40, you're a failure and you're doomed, absolute nonsense. Life gets better as you get older. You won't want to miss this one. But first, here's what to look for this week. There are several things. One is, how is Boris Johnson going to do in that race to succeed the Prime Minister of Britain, Theresa May? He looked like he had things locked up, but then he had a domestic dispute. It's playing out now, but it's not over yet. Then, ICE negotiations. The president postponed for two weeks a week ago, sending people who are here illegally in this country out of the country in a major national sweep. Well, he's not going to get an immigration bill in the next few days. So what will he do next? Then, more on polling. Polls are all over the place, showing that Democrats have a big lead over Donald Trump. Well, one of the things to look at is how these polls are modeled. I brought this up before, and I'll bring it up again. You have to look at how many Republican likely voters they include in these polls. In many of them, they just go with registered voters. So instead of the normal 30, 32% you'd have for Republicans, the rest being Democrats and independents, can go down to 22, 23%. So yes, the president is behind, but not nearly as much as these skewed polls would have you believe. Our special guest today is Rich Carlgaard, publisher of Forbes, futurist, author, lecturer, and author of the new book, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement, a book that couldn't be more timely for anxious parents and students. So Rich, you make the point in this book, among several great points, is that we're overdoing, certain parents are overdoing this obsession with early achievement. That if you don't score 800 on your SATs, if you don't do great summer work that shows you're socially concerned, if you're not outstanding at a certain sport, if you haven't won the Nobel Prize by the age of 21, you're doomed to a life of mediocrity and failure. Yet at the same time, we have the contrast of a culture that also has the attitude of everyone should get a trophy. No one's feelings should be hurt. So let's start with the overachievement part. How did that come about? Why are so many parents grinding their kids relentlessly at such a young age? We're in a country like Finland, which does very well in educational scores globally. They don't formally start teaching kids to read until the age of seven. Well, it's terrific to be with you today, Steve. A couple of months ago, in the headlines was the story of the college bribery scandal, where very affluent parents were bribing admissions directors or coaches of what you might call country club sports 
to try to get their kids into the most elite colleges that they could, colleges that these kids couldn't have gotten into on their own. And while that was felonious uh, and dramatic and made the headlines, it is really the perverse and logical conclusion of what we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years where aspirational parents, particularly in high performance cities like the San Francisco Bay Area or New York or Seattle and those kinds of cities have, are absolutely convinced that if their kids don't get into the most elite college that they can, that somehow their possibilities for a productive adult life will be compromised. And this backs up way into the preschool years, where in New York today, you have preschools that charge $45,000 to $50,000 a year for three-year-olds. And these schools promise a multi-campus setting, uh, immersion in many different languages and all this kind of stuff at age three. And the not so subtle messaging behind that is parents, if you don't do that now, in 15 years, you're going to regret it when your kid doesn't get into Princeton or Harvard or a school like that. So this has been growing over the last 10 or 15 years, particularly over the last five years. I think it has to do with the economy. The two most lucrative parts of the U.S. economy over that period of time have been Silicon Valley technology, which today is really software, not the old tinker in the garage, but software kinds of technology and high finance. And both of these industries reward what I would call rapid algorithmic skills, the ability to solve logic problems very, very quickly. And nothing so demonstrates that as how well you do on the SAT test, so it is thought, and how well you do in advanced placement courses in high school. And this is fine for kids who are naturally gifted in that area. I have nothing against kids who go out after uh, getting into Stanford or Harvard or Princeton and then go out and do amazing things. But kids who have different kinds of skills, spatial skills, artistic skills, or they're simply slow to mature, uh, they're slower thinkers, they're deep thinkers, but they're slower thinkers, get overlooked in such a system. And these are the kids that feel that somehow they're second rate, they're losers, and uh, this has created all kinds of societal dysfunction right now, overspending on college, rates of uh, depression and anxiety that are rising among teenagers and young adults, even tragically, suicides. Suicides are going up for teens and young adults. You have made reference in the past to uh, Hannah Rosen, I believe, is the person who did a study of uh, suicides in uh, the town in the West Coast. Can you, can you walk us through that? Sure. Hannah Rosen's a writer for Atlantic Monthly, and she observed that in Palo Alto, Palo Alto is right next to Stanford, the heart of Silicon Valley, where the public schools are really good, really well-funded, very competitive. And in three Palo Alto high schools, two of them public and one private, there were six suicides and more than 50 hospitalizations or treatments for what is called suicide ideation. So Hannah Rosen came out to investigate it. She discovered that these weren't kids who had years of, of, uh, of professionally diagnosed depression or they weren't kids who had drug problems. They were simply kids who were feeling ashamed about themselves because they were not keeping up. One of the boys uh, was a B-plus student. He'd been posting on social media before his suicide that he 
he just felt that he could no longer get up at 3.30 in the morning to keep up with his advanced placement courses. And you mentioned Silicon Valley, symbol of high tech, Wall Street, symbol of high finance. Why are we so focused on those two areas and not all the other areas? After all, everyone may play baseball or golf or basketball as a kid, but we know the number of us who are going to make it to the NBA, Major League Baseball, the NFL, infinitesimal, that there are obviously a lot of other opportunities out there. Why this belief that if you don't make it in uh, high tech, you're, you're going to be left behind? Well, these have been really lucrative industries. All you have to do is look at the Forbes 400. All you have to do is look at the market values of the most valuable companies in the world. The five most valuable companies in the world right now are all U.S. tech companies from Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Apple, and Facebook. Facebook might have fallen to number six as Berkshire Hathaway has overtaken it for the moment. But these are very, very lucrative industries. They're very lucrative, but uh, obviously, if you look at the Forbes 400, our global billionaires, people do well in a number of other areas. Why is the feeling that if you're not high tech, you're going to be left behind in the world? You're going to have to sit on a couch and just hope somebody gives you an income. Well, that leads us into the discussion about technology, and there's all kinds of fear around artificial intelligence and those kinds of technologies that are coming on us very, very fast. The data is being crunched by this incredible computational power. It is moving through the system faster and faster, today at 4G speeds, tomorrow at 5G speeds. And all of this has created the tableau for a future of artificial intelligence. Now, I think artificial intelligence is misunderstood and it has created this panic among parents and school school administrators that if kids aren't getting straight A's in a STEM track, science, technology, engineering, and math, they won't amount to anything. All you have to do, as you said, look at the Forbes 400 to see otherwise, but but right now at this moment in time, particularly in places like the San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, New York, and Boston, you find this obsession with getting your kids on the STEM track and getting them into these elite universities. Our friend Mark Mills uh, points out that we don't refer to airplanes as artificial birds. We don't refer to cars as artificial horses. Yet on these computational machines, so to speak, we think they're going to take over the world. (laughs) Mark Mills, our good friend, is possibly the smartest guy in the world who understands the application of all this technology in what you might call the physical industries. Now, Nicholas Negroponte at MIT back in the 1990s came up with this wonderful idea of of a way of looking at the economy where you have the bits economy and you have the atoms economy. The bits economy is the economy of, of algorithms. So the bits economy is Silicon Valley today, and it is Wall Street, the ability to manipulate algorithms, either to go out and create markets or to outsmart the financial system. Is, is what these two areas of the economy do so well. And they get a lot of attention. They're located where the media is mostly centered. They're creating these fabulous stories of wealth, the most valuable companies in the world. Behind all these billionaires that are being created are just scores more for every billionaire. There's, you know, there's a score of people who are worth 50 or $100 million after their company goes public. And so it has become a kind of gold rush. 
when you're in the atoms economy, the atoms economy is is on a GDP basis is probably 80 or 85 percent of the economy. It's by far the majority of the economy. It's oil and gas, it's manufacturing, it's transportation, it's agriculture, all of those things. We don't have an economy without without the health of those industries. So the big story coming up is really the application of technology to those industries. And Mark sees that in a way that Silicon Valley people and the parents of, of children um, who who live in Silicon Valley and are aspirational for their kids to succeed in a technology-driven future, they don't see it as clearly as they should. So do you think the combination of your book and also of a circumstance, the rise, of the re-rise of the Adams economy, will get over this misreading of what you need to do to succeed? I mean, even in the area of uh, the economy today, truck drivers, if you're willing to be a long-distance truck driver, not an easy job, you can make $120,000, $130,000 a year. Yet these jobs go begging. They do. A lot of that has to do with the fear that people have that AI and, and driverless trucks will wipe out those jobs. It won't be true. It'll give drivers a chance to take a break on a lonely interstate highway. But when you get into maneuvering an 18-wheel truck in a city, driverless technology and AI is not going to solve that problem soon. Well, look, this, this leads to an issue. Why this obsession with the, with the BITS economy, so much wealth has created, been created in the BITS economy, but there's a complete regulatory and taxation mismatch between the BITS economy and the Adams economy. Anybody that's connected to Silicon Valley and is raising money for a venture, uh, for raising venture capital for their bits startup, can get it pretty easily. The Adams economy is starved for capital. Now that's been a little bit corrected over the last two years, but but Teal has pointed out this lopsided nature of where investment capital goes, going to bits companies, because the return on investment is faster, and these companies are scarcely regulated, even if they go into regulated industries as Uber did into the taxicab industry or Airbnb into the hotel industry, they move so fast that the regulators really can't see them coming and don't know how to respond. And by the time they figured it out, there are so many happy customers at Uber or Airbnb that now they've got a political problem. It reminded me of when uh, Mayor de Blasio of New York decided that he would slow down Uber because of all the pain that it was causing in the taxicab industry the taxicab people feel greater passion about this subject than any given Uber customer, but no politician wants to get, go against two million happy customers. Part of the problem with Adams companies is they're physically there and uh, therefore an easier target. Oh, sure. The OSHA or the EPA can show up at any time. As Mark Mills has pointed out, they don't even have to they don't even have to rule. They can just intimidate. They can throw a bunch of paperwork at you and distract you and cause you to hire lawyers instead of engineers and salespeople. I think the answer is in deregulating the Adams economy, not so much in regulating the BITS economy, but there probably has to be a little more regulation of the BITS economy too. But if you want, if you really want capitalism to thrive in all the industries and create opportunities for great careers, for wealth, for investment, you have to have a balanced field. You can't create such a tilted field that 
that 90% of investment capital goes into the 15% of the economy that is the pure bits economy. Comment, if you could, the opposite side of this obsession with your kid being a a genius by the age of three with uh, the trophy. Everyone must get a trophy. No one's feelings must be hurt. Uh, We're all the same. How does that coexist with this uh, hyper-achievement mentality you see in certain areas of the country? I was as scornful as anybody about these pampered kids, the giving trophies, and and figured out uh, or, or concluded that these kids just were were weak and all of that kind of stuff, snowflakes. But after doing the research here, I think this is what parents and school administrators have done to the kids. I, I don't blame the kids much at all. Uh, giving trophies to all of them, uh, driving them to school, being afraid that if they walk to school, somehow they're going to be kidnapped, even though the statistics don't support that at all. Uh, I think that we've done this injustice to the kids, and um, it's easy to kind of to point fun at them, but I think a big injustice has been done to them. Before we get to uh, your book and its uh, discussion of how each of us have our own different rhythm of moving in life, one of the things you uh, say we've got to be very aware of overdoing it is the don't quit syndrome. Walk us through that, that uh, even something uh, stick-to-itiveness, as my grandfather liked to say, can be overdone and end up harming you, that the culture perhaps overemphasizes that. Well, sure. Our, the pop culture likes to say that quitters never win, winners never quit. And there's a, a great deal of truth to that, but you can take a good idea, overshoot it, and then you see the harmful effects. But I just like to look at the life of any, you know, any serial entrepreneur. Take Richard Branson. Richard Branson has quit some businesses. He quit Virgin Cola. He quit Virgin Bride. Um, he's succeeded in many businesses, of course. And he's not the kind of person or, or is any uh, uh, great entrepreneur, the kind of person that, that quits reflexively whenever they encounter diversity. But you have, you have to have a discussion and teach people and children and teens and young adults, that quitting is part of your arsenal. It's part of your toolkit. Here in Silicon Valley, one of the great quitting stories was when Intel was getting its hind end kicked by Japanese memory chip manufacturers and then later by South Koreans. But it had this promising new product that was the minority share of its revenue and wasn't making much of a profit at all. But you could see that it was going to explode and become big. And that was the microprocessor. So, yeah, we have to teach people the value of quitting. We can work ourselves into exhaustion. Sometimes we need to step back and say that this isn't working. There's always an optimal use of our time, our treasure, our talent, and our purpose. And sometimes it's being misallocated, just like somebody is misallocating their capital in a bad investment. You emphasize in the book, and you cite a number of studies, that as we get older, even if we haven't won the Nobel Prize or uh, become a multi-billionaire, that uh, we develop, uh, despite cultural barriers, we develop many attributes as we age. You mentioned insight, curiosity, compassion, creativity. Tell us about some of those, that as we get older, in many ways, we get better. In doing the research for late bloomers, the most profound piece of research I came across was a 2015 study led by a woman named Laura Germain at Harvard and Josh Hartzorn at MIT, who are both 
doing postdoc work at Massachusetts General Hospital. And they ask a seemingly simple question, at what age do people cognitively peak? And the answer was intriguing, complex, and very hopeful. Because the answer is, well, what cognitive ability are you talking about? We have many. And cognitive processing speed and working memory, the things that make you a really good high-frequency trader on Wall Street or a great software programmer under time pressure, sure, those peak early, those peak in our 20s. Then when we get in our 30s, 40s, and 50s, a whole set of cognitive abilities, deeper pattern recognition, communication skills, equanimity, or the ability to stay calm under pressure, all of those come to the fore. And we're better at those in our 30s, 40s, and 50s generally than we are in our 20s. So you say, well, then what do we lose? Do we really fall off a cliff in those things like rapid cognitive processing speed and working memory? And the answer is we don't. We fall off at a rate of about 0.2 to 0.4% per year. That's not that much as we age. So long as we take care of ourselves physically, so long as we stay mentally engaged and are willing to learn new things, that we develop deeper, richer, intuitive thoughts, more accurate intuitive thoughts as we get older. Yet the cultural barriers are such that these attributes that we develop as we age uh, tend to get overlooked or downplayed. Why is that? Is it just, again, this obsession with youth? Unfortunately, human resources people and corporate legal people have devised a scheme that you might call up and out person comes into an organization and if they're successful, they get promoted, they get pay raises, they get higher job titles. And then all of a sudden, depends on the industry, younger in technology, perhaps older in other industries, but somewhere around the 50s or early 60s, the employer says, oh my gosh, we're certainly paying this person a lot of money. We can't continue to do that because we've got to make room for people coming up or we're going to lose our young talent. And so they decide to retire the person. We need to devise a career track that would look more like an arc. A lot of law firms now have created the position called of counsel. So the former partner now is called of counsel. And they're working as much as they want to work, 20 hours a week, 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week. And they've got a different title and they've got a lower compensation package. That would be a wonderful way of thinking about the career arc at major employers. And here's where you run into the problem. When I taught HR people, legal people, they're worried about the legal liability of doing that. They might have a good faith negotiation with a senior employee and everybody agrees the employee is now working at half the salary but gets to keep health care and is now called coach or mentor or advisor or something like that instead of executive vice president. And everybody agrees that and everybody walks off happy and then months later the Senior employee claims that they were buffaloed into this agreement and they file an age discrimination lawsuit. Well, that's probably a risk, but I think that daring CEOs out there have got to tell their legal and HR people, figure out how to do it anyway. We've got to have this discussion or we're going to leave so many uh, healthy baby boomers and then the Gen Xers behind them in the position where they're wondering why they can't contribute. When they still want to contribute, they can contribute. And many of them, we know that 80% of baby boomers haven't adequately funded their retirement yet. So that's going to create a societal problem down the stream, too. Well, perhaps this is a situation, uh, you, you mentioned the legal problems, 
but it's also a cultural problem. When you see of counsel, certainly uh, what goes through your mind is, ah, put out to pasture. If you see counselor, mentor, consultant, it's a little different. And it may be the kind of situation where you leave the firm that you're with, but you have a certain uh, title. Uh, Culturally, we can come up with that where another firm would be glad to bring you on board. You don't bring in the baggage. You're not competing for this thing or that thing at a lower salary, as you say. That, that may be the way to do it. You leave your old firm and take your talent and mentoring to a new firm. Yeah, that could be. Uh, or you could work in an enlightened company like Forbes, because I've certainly had that negotiation with our CEO, Mike Federley, and it works out beautifully. I'm in my 60s. Uh, I used to have people reporting to me. I don't have people reporting to me now. There are parts uh, of Forbes where I can contribute, as I do with our global CEO conference, or I'm emceeing and moderating a, a conference with one of our advertisers. We should encourage more employers to create those kinds of opportunities. You know, I, I think that the senior employer really needs to step up, too, and realize, make make the case or why that would be good with the employer, too. One of the attributes that uh, you discuss before we move on is the one that we sometimes, again, the culture kind of uh, looks askance at, and that is self-doubt, how that actually can be a motivator. Walk us through that. So learn to separate self-doubt from your feelings of self-worth. Step back and look at self-doubt. What is it telling you? And, uh, and then take the information, put self-doubt aside, and work on whatever that information says. I need more preparation. I need a partner who will complement my weaknesses in this startup that I'm creating. Uh, I simply need time off because I'm exhausted. Self-doubt, if you learn to see it as something useful, it can be very valuable. Now, that's not to say that, that the kind of throw your shoulders back, puff yourself up confidence that can be a tool too. It can get you through a pinch, but over a lifetime, you need to be able to do both. You need to generate, um, you need to fake it till you make it kind of confidence to get yourself through a low spot, but you need that long-term strategy of reconciling yourself with self-doubt. It'll show up like bad weather. So it's going to show up. Let's at least get some use out of it. Capitalism. Why is there such doubt about capitalism and why can't People see that people make errors. People have been doing bad things forever. Policy errors lead to usually the great economic crises. But now people who have benefited from capitalism, free markets, free enterprise, are now saying the system is at fault. We need to change it, whereas capitalism is ever adaptive to people's needs and wants. What, what, what's your take on all of this? I think some of that has to do with this idea of the bits economy and Adams economy, leveling the playing field, particularly by removing the regulatory barriers that affect the Adams economy, will give more people with different skills that aren't necessarily captured by SAT and grades and elite college diplomas. It'll give them more confidence. In terms of the what you mentioned about people have succeeded greatly in a capitalistic environment, then having doubts about capitalism. What I have noticed, Steve, in Silicon Valley is it's not the Silicon Valley that that I once knew. It's not the Silicon Valley of the the 60s when it got the name because of the semiconductor firms, the 70s, 
the personal computer revolution, the iconic story of that era, of course, is Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak tinkering away in a garage. And we've gone from the era of the tinkerer, this popular notion that, that all of these opportunities were accessible to everyone with a bit of gumption, to this era now where it's just all software, it's all algorithmic, it's not physical at all, and it's rewarding this very narrow range of skills that are foretold by how well you do on the SATs, how well you do on in school, uh, and thus your ability to get connected in, in places like Silicon Valley. Just to back up your point on the uh, atoms versus bits, Philip Howard, who's been uh, railing against uh, the craziness of Washington in many ways, has a new book out, and he cites the example of an orchard in upstate New York. They do a good job, but they're subject to 5,000 different rules from 17 different programs. They're always being examined. They'll get gigged if they take the apples from a tree to uh, the shed and not cover them because birds might poop on them, even though they've been on trees out in the open for five months. Ridiculous things like that that just uh, grind them down. Now, uh, getting to the point on Silicon Valley, you mentioned the 50s, 60s, 70s. I remember back in 1978 when we cut the capital gains tax from almost 50% down to 28% and gave rise to the venture capital industry. And uh, the politics of Silicon Valley seemed to be very libertarian, very promising, deregulation, let's move ahead, remove the barriers, and by golly, the world will be a better place. Now walk us through to what you see is happening there that is could be rather toxic and poisonous. Yeah, you had you had balance in Silicon Valley politics back then. And today, um, what you have, uh, I don't think is so much left-wing or socialistic as it is a return to the early 20th century progressivism. Frederick Taylor, who developed the assembly line that was put to spectacular use by Henry Ford, wrote that the day of the individual is over. Tomorrow, it's about the system. And I think in their heart and souls, these Silicon Valley algorithmic kings, companies like Google and Facebook and, and all the venture capitalists that support them, believe that they are the kings of data and algorithms and they sit atop the world and the world could be so much better if we just get these messy humans and their stupid errors out of the way and we can create better robots, better algorithms. But I think it's a mistake to call it left in the contemporary thinking of left. And these people are hard, hardcore capitalists. They fight like, you know, they, they bring guns to the knife fight. They work tremendously hard. They know how to compete, but they think we're entering a new era where the algorithm and the data rule everything and trump human nature and human whims. It, it seems to be a cycle uh, back in the 20s and 30s, even Franklin Roosevelt gave a famous speech when he's running for president in 1932 in San Francisco, of all places, where he said that, uh, yes, the great individualism is over, that we're just going to have a handful of big companies running everything. Everyone thought everything was consolidating and that this whole era of uh, great adventure and entrepreneurship, he didn't use those words, was over. 
and you sort of still had that mentality after World War II, and then uh, suddenly the world dramatically changed, now, and then it was small as beautiful, and now we're back to a handful of people can run everything. Yeah, and if you're running a startup today, it's if you have any idea, you're, you're building to be bought by Google is what's going on. Too many of these companies are building to be bought rather than building sustainable enterprises because they they think in this era of consolidation, that's the only hope that they have for a liquidity exit. So, you know, that brings up the subject of whether we need renewed and more vigorous antitrust legislation. And isn't it interesting, Steve, to watch how the sentiment for that is growing both from the left and the right, and I think at some point might be unstoppable. Yet that deals with the symptom, not the basic underlying cause of the rise of the plethora of small companies you saw a couple of generations ago didn't come from antitrust. It uh, came spontaneously. Do you what, what barriers could we remove other than busting up the biggies that would uh, recreate? Is it, again, emphasizing the barriers to the atoms and uh, that would do it? Is it getting rid of the capital gains tax? What do you see as helping uh, the process of uh, getting a more healthy, balanced economy out there? Well, those two things that you mentioned, lowering the capital gains tax radically, taking it possibly even to zero. Yes. And, you know, would be enormously helpful along with lowering the regulatory barriers. I think of all the things that the Trump administration has done, that one has perhaps been the most valuable thing that they've done and probably accounts for a half point to a full point of GDP growth uptick and more should be done. But also, and this gets to a point that George Gilder makes in Life After Google, we're about due for a technology revolution because just as the, the eternal uh, swing from central authority to peripheral creativity exists in society, it also exists in computing architecture. And George sees that today is the, the era of peak centralization in technology. So new semiconductor firms, um, this enhanced mobility that 5G will bring where, where uh, we're not so dependent on these large server firms. There isn't this idea that every business is either a globally scalable business or dead. Uh, I think we'll look back and say, well, that a lot of that followed the computer architecture of the day, too. So once again, human ingenuity, creativity will come to our rescue if we let it. Rich, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Steve, it was a pleasure. And now, my read of the week. First, something I wrote. I can't help it. It's an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg. Ray, their cryptocurrency, Libra. You can find it online, Forbes.com. The other is an article that you'll find fascinating. It reads like a mystery. It's in The Atlantic, theatlantic.com, written by a man named William Langerwish. The article title, Vanished, How Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 Disappeared. You'll start and you won't want to put it down. It's extraordinary that something like this could happen, but it looks like the mystery has been solved. But the whole thing involved cover-ups. It involved death threats. And as a matter of fact, there's still a cover-up today by the Malaysian police who had interviewed people about the pilot of that doomed flight. 
Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 